The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The writing of Walter Scott brought a vision of the Scottish Highlands to readers all over the globe. To mark the 250th anniversary of the author's birth, Annika Bout wrote an article about Scott for the September issue of BBC History magazine. In this episode, she spoke to section editor Rhiannon Davies about how Walter Scott's work influenced the world's view of Scotland, making it synonymous with the Highlands, romantic landscapes and clan honour. So Annika, for any listeners who aren't aware of Walter Scott, can you very briefly tell us who he was and why he's important? Thank you. Yes. So Walter Scott, or Sir Walter Scott, as he became, is, a, um, is one of the most, most famous, most significant uh, early 19th century writers. Um, he was a, a poet, but also a novelist, as well as a critic. Um, he was also a practicing lawyer, um, but he became the most uh, popular novelist of the early 19th century and throughout the 19th century. Um, there weren't very many Victorian readers either, I think, who wouldn't have heard of him or wouldn't have been very familiar with his novels. And I noticed as well in your feature, you said that he declined the position of Poet Laureate. I was wondering, why was that? I think one of the reasons was that he thought his friend Robert Southey needed the money more, <laughs> needed the position more, because by that point he was already very famous as a poet, obviously, because otherwise he wouldn't have been offered the Poet Laureateship. Um, and he was always very generous and looked after his friends, um, and I don't think he thought he, he needed it. He already had the friendship of the king. He was very popular at the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he just... It, it wasn't a, a political move. I, I think it was just a, a sort of generous move in, in terms of not, not needing the position. That is very generous of him. And thinking now about his success in the feature that you wrote for us, it really comes across that he is a man at the top of his game. Can you tell us a bit more about why he was so successful in terms of the number of books that he wrote and critical reception to his work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, that's a really, really interesting question. Well, um, that, that I spent a long, <laughs> a long time thinking about. So I think one of the, so novels in the early 19th century generally weren't very highly regarded at all. So uh, it was a genre that was sort of looked down on um, often because it was connected to female readership and female authorship. But actually, of course, lots of people did read them. But didn't really admit to reading them. And reviews of novels often would start with justifying the very fact that they would even review novels. Um, they usually then included a, a, a criteria like moral, moral instruction or some sort of justification for including them or, or um, deeming them worthy of notice. So when Scott published his first novel, Waverley, in 1814, he also published it anonymously. The title page does not say novel. So, um, um, so I, I think he probably quite deliberately, or he and his publishers quite deliberately, were a bit vague on the genre. I think it was perceived as something entirely different and entirely new. Of course, he's now being credited very often with being the inventor of the historical novel. Um, and while Gothic novels and other novels set in the past had existed, what's different in his novels is that they, they emphasise the realism. So it's a realistic depiction of past societies rather than current societies depicted in 
in set 300 years ago <laughs> you know it was um it was it was very different so uh it was also the waverley of course was a was a period of history that some people would still remember um it was it was 70 years ago at the time it was published um so it was about the second jacobite uh, uprising of 1745 so i think i think the fact that it was historical that it was a realistic depiction of scottish societies in particular in a way that meant that for most contemporary readers it, it was it was new not just in terms of the history that it depicted but also in terms of the Scottishness that it depicted so many readers saw the Scottishness as the most distinguishing feature so much so that it, it was regarded as as not just a historical Scottishness so the societies that it depicted wouldn't just be seen as Scotland 70 years ago but but as Scotland still um so that was sort of one of the effects it had I suppose as depicting something that was very unfamiliar to most contemporary readers um I think that was one of the things that made him really popular. I think another effect it had was that the Scottishness that was seen as sort of so exciting and so unfamiliar was also seen as as, as being the whole of Scotland when actually Scott is very clear in differentiating the Highlands and the Lowlands and different regions in Scotland and even different dialects in Scotland, of course, different um, uh, different languages and different different societies and cultures. But for most English readers who'd never been to Scotland and for whom this was this was something very far removed from their own experience. It, it sort of became this romantic place very far away where the whole of Scotland became synonymous with what really in Scott's novels are, are the Highlands um, and Highland culture. So can you tell me about his success in quantitative terms? So how many books did he sell, for example? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so um, I mean, he he did become the most successful uh, uh, writer in the early nineteenth century. So he wrote um, twenty seven novels, but he also uh, he also published a range of of poems that were also very popular. So I suppose in terms of uh, just to to illustrate that in quantitative terms, perhaps so a, a sort of average print run of a novel in the early nineteenth century was around seven hundred and fifty copies for a first edition. Sounds very low now, but of course literacy rates were much lower. Novels were very expensive, and a lot of uh, would have read them through libraries. So 750 was, was a kind of average first edition for, for a novel and also for quite a few poems. So if you think of Wordsworth, for example, um, his most of his poems also had print runs of, of um, between 50 and 1,000 copies. Jane Austen's novels had print runs, started off with print runs of about 750 to about 1,000, possibly 2,000, but not more than that. So Scott, from the off, really had much higher print runs than that. So even his early novels uh, had print runs of 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. But then uh, Rob Roy was the first to be initially printed in print run of 10,000 copies. And then that sold out within a fortnight, so needed to be reprinted and so on. So we're really talking superlative popularity here. If the average is 750 and he has he has print runs of 10,000 and above, it just illustrates, I think, how, how stark those numbers were and how, how, uh, um, how popular he became. But also, of course, then how how rich i think in another um number that is that is really striking i think that by uh, the middle of the 19th century scott's works had sold more than 2 million copies which is probably 1 million more than all other romantic period authors put together so that's quite a, um again that that sort of just illustrates quite quite how superlative his his popularity was and therefore also how influential he was so it's not just that critics raved about him and that everybody read him it's 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 also that everybody read him 
more than every, anybody else. Um, and of course, what that then led to was uh, were, were spin-offs, were theatre versions of his novels, and uh, you know more people saw him at the theatre than would have read because of literacy levels. Um, but it also meant that illustrations um, were were made, and you could buy uh, pictures of scenes from his novels in the bookshops. But also, of course, you could walk through the streets of London and have a look at them. So his characters and his scenes and his novels were very familiar to people, and that includes people who wouldn't have been able to buy the novel or read it. You did mention in passing dialects, and this is something I wanted to ask you about because dialects seem to be a really big theme in his work. How did he go about constructing them and why was he so determined to include them in his books? Is it to do with this idea of realistic depiction? Yes. Um, so I think I think he did spend a lot of time researching his novels, um, partly to get historical facts right, but also to get historical societies right and to get dialects right. And of course, he didn't always get it right. Um, so, you know, while for most English readers it worked because it was unfamiliar and therefore therefore couldn't really be investigated, if you like. Of course, there are documents where, where even Scottish readers at the time comment, well, this word should really be this word or that word actually shouldn't, you know, th- this word isn't right either. He quite often didn't get it right. And there were, of course, uh, especially with very particular manners, very particular dialects, there were quite a lot of mistakes. Um, I suppose that's not really what he was trying to do. He was trying to preserve more generally the manners and the language of different areas of the country. Now, of course, he wasn't an expert in all of those. So yes, mistakes happen. And there were critics of him because of that. You know, um, I think one of the things that people uh, at first found quite difficult was actually that mix of history and novel or history and romance it, you know what of this is fact and what of that what can we believe and what of this is actually just just a novel that's just fiction and, and and invention and I guess very quickly most people moved on and really liked that but there were always critics who would point out that this didn't happen on that date but actually that date <laughs> well, I, um, it, it, some of the detail is factually wrong but of course Scott would say and did say that 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 wasn't really what he was trying to do. That of course he should have got it right, but you know that that really the, the more general picture mattered much more. I think the other thing also that he did in his novels was that he depicted the various different social classes, and that therefore the la- different languages used were really really crucial, um, and that different dialects and different ways of speaking were acceptable to readers. Again, I think because his first few novels were all set in Scotland and therefore were removed from English readers' direct experience, it was sort of o- okay to give a Scottish peasant the full emotional and intellectual scope because it wasn't something that had direct that they had direct experience of. I think otherwise it would have been much harder for them to accept uh, both lower class characters, but also finding language interesting or finding characters interesting that speak in a language that isn't acceptable or, you know, accepted English, I guess. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If the Saxon gentlemen are laughing, he said, because a poor man such as me thinks my life or the life of six of my degree is worth that of Fergus, Bishi and Vaux, it's like enough they may be very right. But if they laugh because they think I would not keep my word and come back to redeem him, I can tell them they can, so no, neither the heart of a Highland man nor the honour of a gentleman. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. 
Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Why do you think that Walter Scott was so determined to present this full social spectrum? Because as you were saying, it was very rare for writers at the time. Why is it something he was so determined to do in his work? I think it goes back to wanting to present a realistic depiction of past societies. And part of that was a whole spectrum of societies. So he deliberately doesn't just write about kings and queens and lords and ladies. He writes about the whole social spectrum. So in fact, in most of his novels, he his protagonists tend to be people who are not well known and they are usually fictional. In the novels, people like Bonnie Prince Charlie feature but aren't main characters. So it's the, it's the sort of kings, the queens, the laws and the ladies that feature on the on the sort of periphery of the novel and the plot of the novel is is much more concerned with middle class characters and sometimes even working class characters um, and I think one of the reasons why that was acceptable was because they weren't real <laughs> so so they were they were fictitious um, so I think that's also how he managed to present the progress of society I suppose because his heroes and heroines tend to survive and they tend to survive because they're able to progress and able to adapt to social progress. Whereas, of course, many of the real characters, many of the real uh, historical characters that feature uh, like clan chiefs um, or Bonnie Prince Charlie would have been much harder to make up, <laughs> you know, to show how, how progress affects them. Um, and of course, some of them um, some of them died or, or went into exile. So it, it's, it's much harder to show how necessary progress is. And I suppose that's one of his, probably the main theme that he's concerned with is that on the one hand, there's this past that we shouldn't forget and that we need to preserve. But on the other hand, progress happens and is inevitable. Mm. And continuing to think about this idea of progress, it's a very enlightenment type of progress that he he writes about, isn't it? So it's this idea that society moves through stages. So it's a feudal society, then it's a modern society. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how he engages with those ideas? So he does very much take on board the ideas of Adam Smith and Adam Ferguson, so so 18th century Enlightenment uh, Scottish philosophers, um, and the development of societies more generally. So he sees the Highland cultures, for example, as very much still at a feudal state of society, whereas the Lowland culture and, of course, the rest of England have moved into a commercial stage of social development. So usually what his novels are about is the, is the conflict that happens when neighbouring societies are at different stages of development. Um, and one of the things he's very concerned with, I think, is that while progress happens, you also lose things that are very valuable in that process. So while progress is inevitable, it isn't necessarily always a good thing. Um, and one of the, the the constant themes in his novels, I think, is how he shows the values that are being lost in that progress. Um, so in Waverley, perhaps, um, he very clearly shows, I think, that, that the Highlands, of course, are based on a system of clanship, of loyalty, of friendship, um, whereas the Hanoverians, which at that point is most of Lowland Scotland, um, and England, of course, are based on on 
I suppose, a society much more akin to what we would recognise the rules um, um, and, and, and a commercial setting rather than undying loyalty to your chief. Mm, and you give this example in your feature of a trial that really embodies that clash. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so that's that's towards the end of a novel, and I think it's probably one of the most moving scenes in that novel, where um, um, where Fergus MacIver, who's the um, clan chief, and his clansman Evans Ben are tried by a Hanoverian court. Uh, this is after the defeat of the Jacobite army in 1746 at Culloden, when the Hanoverians um, very brutally, of course, ended uh, um, well, tried to to try to end and did end most of Highland culture. So Fergus makes Evans stand accused of high treason and both prisoners are asked if there's anything they want to say um, before they get sentenced to death by hanging and disemboweling. And Fergus, of course, as as he would, says, well, he would do the same thing again and would fight for Bonnie Prince Charlie again. And, and, and of course, the, it's the wrong, the, the wrong government on the throne. So that's Fergus kind of standing up to his beliefs and values, knowing that that, that, that will mean a rather gruesome death the next day. And then the judge turns to, to Evan and asks him whether there's anything he wants to say and he asks the judge if he can go back to Fergus's castle in the Highlands and come back with six men in exchange for Fergus's life. And he says, we will all gladly be hanged if you let Fergus go. And the audience in the court, um, the members of the Hanoverian public, I guess, they, uh, they, they, they laugh at this and think it's, it's funny. And then, and then Evan responds and says, if the Saxon gentlemen are laughing, he said, because a poor man such as me thinks my life or the life of six of my degree is worth that of Fergus, Vichy and Vaux, it's like enough they may be very right. But if they laugh because they think I would not keep my word and come back to redeem him, I can tell them they can, so no, neither the heart of a Highland man nor the honour of a gentleman. So it's a real kind of condemnation, I suppose, of, of the Hanoverian, um, of Hanoverian culture and of Hanoverian values who can't believe um, that, that somebody would be so loyal to their chief <laughs> and, and, and makes what is to them a very outlandish proposal, but what to him is 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 just the ultimate representative of his loyalty to his chief. And now it would be great if we could talk a bit more about how Walter Scott's work really changed perceptions of Scotland, which I know you mentioned earlier in the discussion, but I think it'd be really good to drill down into that a bit more. So could you really lay out for us how he did transform this idea of Scotland and how it kind of gave rise to this kind of tartan kitsch I think you refer to it in the future. <laughs> Thank you yeah um, so most of Scott's early novels are set in Scotland and deal with historical events in, in living memory of most readers. He is very concerned with presenting the conflict and the differences between different cultures. So the Highland and Lowland culture, but also, of course, Highland culture and the rest of England, really, in the case of, say, Waverley, where it's about the Jacobite rising. Because he depicts these the settings very realistically. He spends a long time describing the scenery, describing where people walk, how people talk, how people travel. And because he describes people's conversations very realistically, I think it became very vivid in people's imaginations. It became something that they could imagine very well um, and something that they really wanted to see. 
So one of the things that happened, well, there are two things, two things that happened. One is that while he was quite clear on the differences between the Highlands and the Lowlands, readers were much less so. So for readers who'd never been to Scotland, for whom Scotland was this distant entity that they might have heard of, but hadn't certainly hadn't been and didn't know very much about, um, for readers, the whole of Scotland became synonymous with the Highlands. So Highland culture, Highland clanship, the values of loyalty became something that all of Scotland, that romantic landscape became something that all of Scotland was associated with. Um, So that's one thing that happened. And I think the other thing is that this came at a time when tourism as a concept became more and more popular and when, of course, travel became increasingly easy. So Scotland itself became more accessible um, physically. Now, throughout the 19th century, that was obviously also supported by things like the railways, um, by Queen Victoria's interest in Scotland and so on. It wasn't just Scott, but Scott's novels had a major influence in making uh, Scotland popular as a tourist destination. Mm, And this is something I was wondering about. Are they going to specifically see the scenes he described or do they just think as soon as they get to Scotland it's all just like it was in Scott's books and it is this really kind of superficial view of Scotland that they buy into I think most did go to the locations that he describes because he's so specific and yeah it does use real locations um you, you know it's again that sort of mix of realism and romance I guess if you like they're real places that he describes they're real people so yes yeah, so people do go and see exactly the places that he described I guess in a way that literary tourists still do now um, you know if you go to Bath people want to know exactly which house Jane Austen lived in <laughs> you know, um, and it's 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 a little bit like that or which house a character in a novel might have might have frequented and so on so it's, it's a bit like that. Of course and there is one person in particular who visits Scotland that I want to talk about and that is King George IV who visits Scotland in 1822. Can you tell us a bit about the role Scott played in this visit and particularly the wearing of tartan? Yeah. So that was the first royal visit in over 150 years to Scotland. So it was a big event and Scott uh, had had been tasked with orchestrating it and helping helping with the um, organisation. So he asked members of the clans to wear their distinctive tartans. And of course, George IV himself was also asked to wear a tartan, which he did. Um, His, however, was a little bit too short. So it ended well above the knee and uh, revealed his pink tights. So um, much to the amusement of some of the, the public, as you can imagine, so they're very nice caricatures of King George IV in a far too short tartan kilt. So that, um, so that's um, yeah, that that um, that that event um, uh, contributed, though, as it, in terms of in terms of cultural impact, that event really contributed to bringing tartans back into. Um, um, into Scottish culture um, and making the wearing of it, which of course had been forbidden after the Jacobite Rising of 1745 and 46, um, uh, br- brought it back into into fashion, if you like. And thinking now about the longer legacy of Walter Scott, how does his works continue to shape how we see Scotland today? So this is a that's actually a very, in some ways, a difficult question because some of the things that he's associated with, of course, weren't his making. You know, what later generations do to an author, if you like, or may, or do with an author's novels <laughs> or works um, and how they read them and interpret them, of course, has nothing to do anymore with the author's intention. Um, it's how it's how a later generation um, appropriate things. So, uh, you know, I, I think that that idea that Scott invented a romanticised or kitsch version of Scotland isn't very accurate. It's just that's how we like to think of it or that's how, how we've come to think of it. Um, I think his legacy 
it's huge and probably we're not even aware of how how big it is, I suppose. If you think about all the spin-offs, you know, the 90 operas, all the street names, railway station names, you know, how many people who go to Edinburgh Waverley um, recognise that that is the name of Scott's first novel. So I think his impact more generally is still, I think, to make us realise the progress of society, the sort of inevitability of that, but also still, I think, to make us realise the the things that, that society's lost in that process. Um, I think the Highland culture that we think about is very close to that in Scott's novels. Um, some of the films, of course, some of the adaptations have strengthened that idea as well. Um, uh, so I think while he's much less popular now than he was in the 19th century, I think there is still that legacy of getting us to think about the relationship between the past and the present. And for my final question, continuing to think about his legacy, how did his work inspire later writers and poets? So in the 19th century, there was nobody who was more popular than Scott. Everybody who we now admire, you know, whether that's Dickens, um, whether that's George Eliot, they would have all been very, very, they would have all grown up on Scott um, uh, and and would have all um, emulated him. Um, I think there were a whole host of of historical writers. And I think think that is... uh, uh, that that is a very lasting influence, or a very, very uh, on on literature. I think is that uh, historical writers of of historical fiction in the nineteenth century did adopt his model of a real or of trying to depict um, past societies in a realistic way, um, rather than well before Scott, uh, historical novels might have been set uh, uh, two hundred years ago, but didn't really engage with the differences in society then, or how how characters might have behaved or spoken. Um, so I think that that probably is um, is, is something he, he achieved. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Annika. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was Annika Bouts. You can read her article on Walter Scott in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale until the 1st of September. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Helen Carr and Susanna Lipscomb will be speaking about their new book, What is History Now?